Hello and welcome <laughs> to the podcast today. You sound like McGonagall from uh, <laughs> from Harry Potter. That's funny. I've been listening again. Yeah, that's why there's McGonagall coming in. Actually, you sound like the guy on Audible doing Jim, McGonagall's voice. Jim Dale. Dude. Jim Dale. Jim yeah. Dale. Well, you know what's funny is I've actually been um, considering the picked the picked people. The Pictish and uh, and the Northumbrian, <laughs> the Northumbrian Kingdom of Scotland. I've been doing some studying. Okay. Okay. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, Tell me more. Talk to us. It, it just happens. Well, I'm I'm obsessed with uh, Celtic knotwork, and mm. I have been so since I found a, a book by Ian Bain. Okay. Uh, oh, he, uh, Ian I, is the bane of my existence. Uh, Ian Bain, and actually, and and when I discovered Ian, I discovered his father George. So George and Ian Bain. Um, they uh, have two books on uh, the construction. Oh, the Bain books. The Bain books, and so um, and so recently, like I, I went back to Trinity College Dublin and found that they had put a trove of high resolution images of the Book of Kells, and so I've undertaken a reproduction of nice. the Kiro page as well as a work on doing its theology because I, I haven't I have to sk- search myself deep inside to um, find some academic works on on the the Celts. But yeah, this is yeah, this yeah. Is, but this is to say okay. my, um, that the Northumbrian Pictish people in okay. the island of Iona and yeah. Linsfernay, yeah, yeah. they are those are where these manuscripts came from. So I that's why I've been studying the P- Pictish people and why Which is McGonagall, where McGonagall comes from as well. <laughs> See this I'm is, just trying to get it back. Where, where, yeah, that's it. This is this is my whole life. This is, is my whole life. It's just one weirdly dots. weird little thing connecting to another little thing until threads, baby. Until finally, everybody is tired and uh, their eyes are glazed over. <laughs> <laughs> this is my life's work. Oh mercy, man! Yeah, this that's just, not true. It's just what it's just the reality, man. It's like when you're into stuff, you just get used to people's eyes being glazed over because y- you just are. If you don't know what the Book of Kells is, which I didn't until recently, you should do a Google search and find the Cairo page. And the uh, the sheer amount of intricacy and artistry is is really mind blowing. This is right. not something that I was really conscious ever knew about. But you, there's some cool stuff. And so this is a fascinating project. So if your eyes are glazing over, that's on you. <laughs> Take that. Yeah. Well, speaking of eyes glazing over, nope, that doesn't work. Uh, it doesn't um, work. Maybe from too much eating. And drinking, uh, are that you can make that, one's eyes glaze. Are, are you saying right? that because I I fed Scott, I made no. Him, I'm talking about the first reading. I made him Doritos nachos today with hot dogs, with uh, hot dogs, uh, with Hebrew national hot dogs, and it's and the it, dream lunch of every fifth grade boy <laughs> that no one ever gets to actually fulfill. And there's a reason that we were asked by our parents not to eat that for lunch. <laughs> I'll just say that and leave it there. Dude, I had lots of vegetables yesterday, man. Did you? I did. All right. Yeah, man. This is I, I just am keeping balance. That's good. No, this was uh, too many vegetables. You have to make sure that you have Doritos nachos. Makes Father Peter a dull boy. Yep. <laughs> That's right. Well, uh speaking of <laughs> I keep trying to bring it to this. Feast. Feasting. See the, speaking of feasting. So our first more on reading that. more on that soon. Do not call me a moron. Okay. So um our first reading is is guess what? Isaiah, Isaiah. <laughs> I, I guessed it. It's like 
Dude, I want to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do a statistical analysis of the amount of times that we have Isaiah as the first reading in our liturgical Sundays. My guess is, if I had to guess off the top of my head, I would 62. guess between 30 and 40%. I would guess I bet 62. it is lower than it seems to be. I'm betting 62. All right. 62. It's recorded. So Yep, now so, it's recorded, okay. unless I edit it out. Actually, this and is, I change my answer. This is what I want from our LengthGuys listeners. There is somebody who does statistical analysis. I'm no, no doubt. And I need you guys to settle this bet. Now, let's put some consequences on this Are we bet. bet? Yeah, I don't we're know if I feel it. strongly enough about this to bet on it. I do. I got 20 <laughs> bucks. But, but uh, I'm not betting 20 bucks on this. Why not? Because I don't have twenty bucks. <laughs> okay, to bet then, on this. Then, um, you know, bet no. me like a birthday coupon or something. A birthday coupon for a hug. <laughs> Come on, this is <laughs> one free hug if you win. <laughs> All right, the first reading. <laughs> uh, uh, surprise! It's Isaiah. <laughs> Isaiah twenty-five, six, uh, ten to a, uh, six. Through 10a. Yeah, okay, that's, that's more or less it. Our, respon- <laughs> our responsorial psalm is coming from Psalm 23, the famous, Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Dude, can I just tell you that these first two readings are are like very much used for funerals. Like this Oh, is, the first reading too? Yeah, the first reading in the psalm, like this is- It makes sense that the first reading would be, but I've never heard the first especially reading. Especially here in Boulder, because it's on this mountain, so like people like that sentiment. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I, I find it very um, beautiful and powerful. That is, uh, it's also apropos for how the marriage, how the feast in the gospel goes bad. Yeah, and I have to tell you that the last <laughs> line on the first reading is not included in the funeral reading. Oh, thus the Moabites shall be trodden down in their place as straws trodden down in the dung pit, which doesn't show up in our reading for Sunday. Oh, it thankfully. doesn't. No. <laughs> no, oh. no, someone at the USCCB had the good sense to cut that. Oh, one it's ten A, and that's so why then, it's A. Oh, <laughs> the Moabites don't show up whatsoever. Okay. Uh, our responsorial. I was studying this. I was like, why did they include that in the, <laughs> the thing? Well, there's actually a reason. I'll tell you what the reason is in a moment. Okay. Um, it makes sense to not include it in the liturgy, but it makes sense in the macro uh, part of Isaiah that we're in. Okay. So then our, so you got the Psalm. I do. Psalm 23, verses 1 through 3a, and then 4, no, then 3b through 4, and then 5 and 6. <laughs> Really stitched together this week. And then our responsory itself is from verse 6, part C and D, stitched together. Dude, mine just has um, 1 through 6. Uh, that would be a more efficient way to do it, but that's not what I have. I mean, it's 1 through 6 missing a few words, minus <laughs> minus a few things here and there. Okay. Our um, second reading is coming from— I'm, uh, That's my job. Yeah, but you, you snooze, you lose. Philippians chapter 4. Verses 12 to 14, followed by the verses 19 to 20. Mm, that's right. We're closing in on the end of the book of Philippians. Mm. And our gospel's a long one so this week. So don't Philippian out on Oh, uh, I'm flipping out that you even made that joke. Our gospel, a bit of a long one. It's chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Or there is a slightly shorter version, but the slightly vo- shorter version doesn't have nearly as much depth. So... Death? We only, death. I thought you said death. Death. It sounded like I said death. Anyway. It, it really, you just ate your words. You were like um, that one, like my fair lady or whatever. Ezekiel is forced to eat a scroll. Remember that? Dude, you know, the next time I see somebody being forced to eat their Bible in prayer, like, <laughs> could you imagine sitting there in prayer in Holy Hour and you look over and somebody's like literally eating their Bible? I would be like, dude. It may be sweet in your mouth, but it's going to sour in your stomach, You're bro. Like, metaphor, John Davis. Metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, Isaiah. <laughs> Come on, that was funny. Yeah. Um, Isaiah. Uh, the only thing I really want to say about this, this, this section of Isaiah, this section from chapter, I believe it's 23 through 27, okay. of which 25 kind of small, falls smack in the middle, is sometimes known as the little apocalypse of Isaiah. Okay. So Isaiah, again, I've mentioned this on the podcast, one of my frustrations with Isaiah, just... Isaiah is hard to to compartmentalize for me because chronologically he's so far all over the map. And so you can, and we've talked about this a million times, you can sort of split the book in two of the, you know, the, the, if then this is the book of blessings and the book of, I'm sorry, the book of warnings, so to speak, the first uh, 39 chapters, and then the book of woes, this is the consequence in the second half of the book. But even within that, they're still jumping back and forth constantly, even within those uh, designations. So chapter 23 through 27 is kind of this little vignette in a certain sense of, Uh, a series of oracles to the nations, which is why the Moabites show up. So there's a list of all of these different consequences. Oracles to the nations is a frequent theme, both in Isaiah and in the prophets in general, of kind of going through this litany, this list of all of these nations and all of the ways that they have done wrong and what is evil and the consequences that will come. Because again, you know, it's, it's this part of what the prophets are trying to do is look out at the world and say, wow, there's so much injustice. There's so much evil. There's so much stuff. Will God ever step in? Will there ever be, will there ever be justice done? And the, the prophets are in part saying, yeah, there will be justice. There will be justice for all the evils and the atrocities that are committed. The shock of Isaiah is that they, then he puts Israel in that list. Mm. They show up in the oracles to the nations because the other thing the prophets are trying to do is say, Israel, you can't see yourselves as being better than all of these other sinners because you yourselves are sinners. You yourself have turned far from God. And perhaps it's even worse because you had all the resources. You had the covenants, the scriptures, the prophets, and still you rejected. So this is what we're seeing in this section of the book. And in chapter 24, there is chapter 24. I don't know if you read chapter 24. What precedes this is rough, man. And it... I don't mean to laugh, but the heading I actually have in my Bible is the Lord's devastation over all the earth. <laughs> and then you read chapter 24 and I can that can give you the clue of what that's about. It's just devastation and punishment and and uh, and um, destruction, really. But hot I on think, the heels. You know what I think is happening partly is that is that uh, it's a little bit of doom scrolling. You know what I'm saying? Because it's uh, a Isaiah's scroll. Doom sc- it is a scroll. <laughs> That's uh, <laughs> no, but, so much there. Th- no, but but like you have to set up cognitive dissonance to give relief. Like you have to un- like that's the nature of okay. how we work is that you go through and you say like, oh no, and then you're like, oh, there's hope. Oh, this is good, and this is actually yeah. This is a principle we work on literally in every aspect of human life, and yeah. we, we actually have to be careful about how we use it. And how others use it, and like, and so in scripture, I mean, I, th- this is a type, and I just want to, I yes. just want to point that out as like, be careful in a contemporary age where somebody's going to be giving you like doom and gloom, and then oh yeah yeah oh, yeah, I got the solution for you. It's the no, Green New important. Deal. <laughs> like, well, that's that that is important though because that's that's such an easy temptation to fall into, right? And where I, I think we then come back is that there is a liturgical context to this. In, right. in a broad sense, but in a more specific sense, because then, well, and, and 
the other, I, I see a lot of parenthood principles here. There is punishment, but punishment should only happen for the sake of restoration, for the sake of reconciliation. So as a parent, you have to punish your kids once in a while because there are things that happen that shouldn't happen and there have to be consequences. Right. But those consequences should always lead to a restoration of relationship right. or a reconciliation or a building back up. And so this is where people sort of lose um, patience sometimes with the Old Testament or lose interest. And we read all the doom and we read all the doom and gloom and the punishment and we don't wait for the second half. How is God, now what is God going to do? Right. And so liturgically, so 25, which comes hot on the heels of all this destruction of 24, is about this feast, this celebration. It's described almost as a wedding feast of all these choice foods and wonderful things and meals and this web that was over all the nations that God's going to destroy and people from every, all the places will come and, and have this meal and God will wipe away the tears from every face and the people from every place. And there's a lot of weird rhymes in here. Um <laughs> But the, the Christian tradition has always sort of looked at this together, and you're like, okay, so we have a statement of utter destruction followed quickly by a meal of celebration. And the fathers of the church and a lot of the patriarchs would say, oh, this is a foreshadowing of the passion and the mass. Because we only get the celebration of the liturgy and the mass through Jesus taking on the curse of destruction. The, the, the day of the Lord is the macro theme that runs throughout the whole scriptures. That there will come this day of reckoning with everything. When all the consequence will be made bare and everything will essentially be made right. And the Christian tradition says that that happens on Good Friday. Jesus allows himself to be destroyed on behalf of the rest of the earth, of whom he is king over. And it's because of that sacrifice, the taking on of all the destruction that was so scary back when we read it on the other side of hindsight, that then the celebration over what he has done then makes sense. Mm. So I don't think it's possible to really understand fully Isaiah 24 and 25 outside of the passion narrative and outside of the liturgy. Which is, I think, what this is all pointing toward. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. I think that's, which, which I, part of the reason I say that is that it gives us reason to not have to doom scroll anymore, because the destruction has taken place. The mm. consequence for sin has been reckoned to the degree that we still live in fear and in the consequence of sin, and as though we are still steeped in sin, we're going to still reap our own consequences. But the punishment has been taken. Right. It is it, it is to us now and it is to the Christians to say, no, I actually don't have to live in the lies of all the fear that the world is presenting me and all of the false alternatives that they give me to bring me salvation because salvation has already been wrought. It's already there. It doesn't always feel like it, but it's a done deal. So I can go to the feast in a certain sense. Right. Right. So sorry, I, I didn't mean to cut right. you and, off before, and, though. And, and that, that's the part it's like i've been looking at even just at ecclesial politics and oh good just heavens to betsy <laughs> you know just regular politics ecclesial politics and like how like Ugh. we're not different people from the medievals like, yeah this is the the like, fallacy of the enlightenment right we were talking about this just even before the podcast yes. is is that like no like even though sin sin does not like it has not won Right, sin still rages yes. throughout all time, and it's still. I'm the happy same. you chose the word "rages" because I thought you were going to say "rains" or, it, but which makes it seem like sin has won. But it rages, and what what is someone? We've talked about this on the podcast before. We've used this analogy. What does a bully do when he knows he's been defeated? A bully rages. A bully gets angry. A bully tries to lash out and show how powerful he is in the spite of embarrassment and having been shamed. 
So evil rages now, but it doesn't rain. Right. And I want, that's an important. I'm happy for the word choice you chose. Yeah, and that's that's really where it's like, oh no, like this, this just like, and and it's all oriented towards the feast, the marital yeah. feast, and yeah. like this is this is actually what's this is what's so wild is that even into the feast, we're not talking about that it's innocent and all easy and that every it's just a nice dinner but that the feast <laughs> involves a tremendous amount of intensity to get us there yeah um there's there's oh, there's so much part of the intensity that Isaiah is pointing toward and th- this i think it directly relates to what the gospel does and what Jesus how Jesus is unpacking salvation history through his parable right i can't really separate like as it's soon impossible as we start to separate. like the, these readings are are very intentionally chosen all of them with the theme of the feast but the the one of the difficulties of the feast of isaiah or the way that isaiah describes the feast it's one feast really yeah. but the way that isaiah describes it is if you, again, put it in context of what the book has been doing, we've just finished this long litany of oracles of punishment toward all the bad guys that we didn't like and all of the nations who have beat us up and all of our enemies and they're going to be punished. And then all of a sudden you have on this mountain, the Lord will destroy the veil that veils all the peoples and the web that is woven over all the nations. He'll destroy death forever, all these things. But this celebratory feast is actually going to involve all of the people from the nations whose punishment and destruction we just witnessed in the last two chapters. And it's it's one of these things of like, you can have the vision of like, oh, happy-go-lucky, let's all hold hands and sing Kumbaya. But on the other hand, you're like, I don't know if I want to share a meal with the Mennonites. Uh, not the Mennonites. The, uh, the what, what did you, not the Mennonites, the... What's the last line of the Moabites? The Moabites, not the. I like the Mennonites. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we I do. actually like the Mennonites a lot. Yeah, they're very, um, they're very quiet. But the Moabites and the Philistines and the Babylonians and the Egyptians and like wow, the, all the nations that have done these terrible things that we're waiting to see is God going to repay them? Is He going to give the consequence, the punishment? It's it's in so many ways it's like the story of the prodigal son, and the older son in the story who just wants so badly for his younger brother to be punished. I want to see him punished. I don't want to be invited to a feast to celebrate his return. I want to watch the consequence for what he has done because he embarrassed us and he hurt us. And all you want to do, dad, is celebrate his return. And I wonder if there's a piece of that that's going on in this that that's underneath the the um, in between the lines, so to speak. But but again, if you've just watched the statements about the destruction of your worst enemies and then they're invited to a dinner with you. Like, that's a weird eschatological vision for God to have. But it speaks to the vocational identity of Israel, who's was, supposed to be the light to all the nations. It was really interesting. That was actually the kind of final question in the uh, vice presidential debate last night. Oh, yeah. I it wish was, I didn't watch it. it was, they had an eighth grader present a question, and it was a good one. And they said that... that uh, um, that there's so many jokes we, that could be said. <laughs> <laughs> there's, that there's uh, two things. You have uh, all of these... All of these leaders who can't get along and all we see in the media is just all of these leaders. Who this is have, what the eighth grader said? Yeah. And they said, and how can we, how can we expect the, the, the um, people of the United States to get along if we can't see even our leaders get along? Boom. And, yeah, and so and then the wow. two the two different answers from from um, the vice presidential candidates 
uh, for the vice president and then the senator. Like <sighs> it was it was really interesting because Pence he he went and he was like, no, he's he's like, you know what? We believe in vigorous and and hearty debate and dialogue in Absolutely. our country. But then afterwards, he pointed towards uh, Scalia and Ginsburg. He said, you know what? And and they have <sighs> That's a the right thing to do. They have a they have a real friendship, even though they yeah. disagree on everything, and yeah. their families have a friendship, and that yeah. they they actually there's something that binds them, even though they can have vigorous dialogue and debate. Because they they can see that there's actually more to life than politics and, and policy. Absolutely, there's humanity, and that's actually where the the, the mm. thing that it's uh, that, that is mm. like distinctly um, that we we hold up, and which is actually something that we espouse, is that yes, we can vigorously contend about things. But Absolutely. Are, we but, should. And, we and, ought to. And this has been a theme over the last couple of months for us is to say we vigorously fight for truth and yeah, and, right. it, and it involves the full person. But that at the end of the day, the full person is still invited always to the feast. And that, 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 that's, that that's absolutely like e- even... Even in the midst of that, like even after the vigorous debate, even after like the struggles, like the, there is still the invitation, and this is always going to be the this is always going to be the case. Yeah, gosh, there's a lot. There's a lot there. Yeah. Um, let's keep going because you you bubbled up a lot of stuff in my heart that I'm not sure what to do with. Yeah. So let's go to Psalm 23. Psalm 23 again, the famous Psalm: "The Lord is my shepherd; I Which, shall not want." If, yeah. This is a fun game. <laughs> if you guys ever want to. <laughs> If you ever want to get somebody to reference Psalm 23, just say, hey, do you have a favorite psalm? Oh, yeah, it's this one. And Because it's the one that everybody it's knows. It's the this only is, one This knows. is the one that is like, it's so deep inside of people, which is a really beautiful gift. Think about like what this is saying. Like, And I, I just love it. I, I really am thankful that this is the one of the most prominent psalms that exist. One of the things it says that sticks out to me um, is that so the, the shepherd Lord is my shepherd when we hear this I mean I've got three kids and so we I, I've, I'm sure I've made this joke before but the amount of my first Bibles we have the amount of first Bibles we have across screw, strewn across our house is just laughable because <laughs> you know we're Catholics we do ministry and so everybody gets our kids Bible so we have so many my first Bibles or some version of that you know what I mean yeah and there's always this imagery the, the imagery that I mean I can't hear this psalm I, I'm happy it's so ubiquitous with people but I can't hear this psalm without seeing a cartoony image of a shepherd with a staff and a cartoon sheep or something which is which is beautiful and there's something good about that but um, I I think we I miss the the greater depth of it, which so in the ancient Near East, uh, the shepherd was always a terminology that was used for a king. This isn't unique to Israel. Other nations actually followed this as well. Oh. And so, yes, you can think of a shepherd leading sheep. But th- and there's a reason that that metaphor was actually used politically. And what it's saying in a very it, on, on many levels is the Lord not just is my you know cartoon shepherd and I'm a little lamb who's sheep and I'm cute, but it's also saying the Lord is truly my king. Right. And despite whatever other political forces or civil or material forces are pushing me or pulling me or oppressing me or whatever else, God is my king. So therefore I shall not want. And my king leads me to verdant pastures where I can have rest and restful waters. He leads me. I mean. We don't necessarily think of our political leaders in these terms, right. but it's saying, no, God is beyond all of that, but he also is those things. God is not some metaphorical abstraction that's disembodied. Right. He wants your material, your your civil, your political, your social, your economic, your spiritual well-being. He is over all of these things. That's why 
you don't have to want. That's why you can be like a sheep who is led because there's other forces that are going to try to pull you and to right. lead you and to push you. But the Lord is my king. He is my shepherd king, therefore I shall not want. And it's not coincidental then that the greatest kings in Israel's history are David, who is the shepherd, who is, again, this isn't just like a cutesy, cartoony thing. He's a good shepherd because he killed and slaughtered any threats, any animal, lion, bear threat that would try to destroy his flock. He's tough and he's going to protect. And Jesus is shepherd king. He doesn't have to kill bears, but he destroys evil and death that seeks to get us and destroy us. But um, I just I was just meditating on what this would be like to hear in not the 2020. I have a billion, you know, little kids Bibles floating around my house, but in the ancient Near Eastern setting in which it was written. And I wonder what it would be like to hear this psalm for the first time. The Lord is my shepherd. I, I'm threatened by so many things. There's so many dangers. I'm scared politically. I'm scared economically. I'm scared socially. I'm scared of so many things. But the Lord is my shepherd king, so I don't need to want. I don't need to doom scroll, in other words, mm. because this is actually under control. It's right. okay. I don't know. I'm not saying anything new, but it was just my 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 meditation this morning. I like that. Yeah. I. Yeah. I, I guess I. I guess I. I didn't consider it deeply enough. Like. I, because I, I. That's the danger of the psalms and things like this that are so, so well familiar. known, so familiar. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, like think about what that is. Like, I, uh, it's it's interesting. I was watching a movie, um, uh, the uh, Dersu Uzala by Akira Kurosawa, everybody's favorite. You know, Dersu, and so it's basically it's a Russia survey team. It's a what survey team? Russian. Oh, okay. What did I say? Russia. 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 It's a Russia. Russia. <laughs> um, it's a Russian survey team okay. um, that is going through, and they find themselves, and they're they're like surve- geographical survey, or yes, yeah, like they're taking a survey on your favorite TV shows. No, like geographical Got survey it. team in in like the turn of the century, and they end up meeting this Japanese tracker while they're in the valley of the shadow of death. They're like they like, and it's really interesting because as they're talking, is it called that? No. Oh, okay. It's called Dersu Uzala. <laughs> no, the valley of the shadow. of Death. No, okay. no, but but they're just talking about how but like they're in a how place. horrible the place is and like like it's yeah, this yeah. shadow of death. And then in the middle of the they they actually meet this this man Dersu and and Dersu is like this very very interesting person who shepherds them um, through oh. through so much. And then th- this relationship and I'm actually wondering now as we're talking about it that if the, if there's an overarching theme about the metaphor of the shepherd through the valley of death because. Yeah, it's really, it's really very interesting. What's the only way to get to a mountain? Through the valley. To go to the valley. And what's our first reading pointing toward? It's pointing toward this eschatological mountain on which there will be this celebratory feast. The only, maybe there's a deeper connection to the first reading in the psalm than I ever thought about. Because the only way to actually get to a mountain is to have to cross through the valley. Isaiah just took us through a pretty dark valley. And then the psalm reflected on walking through the valley of death, which is what literally Isaiah has just been describing. But that's the only way to actually get to the mountain. That's right. interesting. That's that's really good. I'm glad that we're talking about tracking and Dersu. <laughs> yeah, that, no, I knew, totally. I knew that Dersu had, had something to tell us. Okay, so Philippians. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
So, so what's interesting is that he knows how to live in both humble circumstances and with abundance. <laughs> You're just reading it. <laughs> I, that's profound. Tell me more about that, Father Peter. Yeah, yeah. He, in every circumstance, turns out that oh he has gosh. learned the secret of being both well-fed and hungry. I'm just trying to see how close this is to the end of the book being itself. Being in abundance and in need. Yeah, it's right at the end. Really, really close. Um, this is his conclusion. I, I thought that was true. I had to double check myself. But th- this is his conclusion to everything. And if we remember the whole context of this letter, I mean, this is an important, high-profile, uh, uh, high retired military city where people are, are reaping their rewards. They've already gone through the valley, so to speak, right? right? A lot of the citizens of Philippi, they fought the fight. They have won the race. They have done all of the things that were set out, and now they are reaping their reward. And for Paul to come into a community like that, that considers we've already gone through the valley of the shadow of death. We've already fought for our king. We've already sacrificed. It's already hurt. And now we are celebrating. We are reaping the reward that is due to us. And for Paul to then step in and say, no, 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 you've misunderstood everything. There is so far beyond this. You haven't even begun. And for the people who understand themselves to be reaping their reward, for Paul to say, actually, you're going to enter into suffering now because what it means to actually receive the reward, what it means to be united to the one who gives us the reward, who is the reward, is to pour yourself out, the canonic hymn, right? Self-sacrifice for one another. Um, And then, you know, he goes on to describe his own. This is what I gave up. Here's what I have sacrificed because of my true citizenship, which is not in Rome, but which is in heaven. And then he concludes by saying, hey, I know how to live in humility. I'm not reaping my reward of my nice uh, retirement village like you guys, but I also know how to live with abundance. I've been wealthy. I've been influential. I've been prominent. Paul was one of the greatest teachers of his time. He's like, I understand living in prison and getting beaten, and I understand being respected and well-loved and being the top of my game. I understand all of that. But in every circumstance, in all things, I've learned the secret of being well-fed and going hungry, of living in abundance and being in need. I can do all things in he who strengthens me. He's speaking again about this feast. In other words, tapping into the Eucharistic feast that was pre, uh, foretold to us back in Isaiah. That's where the secret is. That's where the feast is. It doesn't look like what the Philippians necessarily expected their reward to look like. Because there isn't a sense of the afterlife in the Roman mythologies in the same way that Christianity has. But he's like, no, there's so much more beyond this. You think it's nice to live in your nice retirement house, community, and coastal seaside Philippi? No, there's so much beyond this. There's the eschatological mountain that you literally get to taste every time you go to Mass. You get to sit at table. And then the veil will eventually be lifted and you'll see it in its fullness. But this is his kind of last word. He's like, don't be afraid of sacrificing. Don't be afraid of giving up. Don't be afraid of having something either. Know that the secret is actually beyond what we can see with our eyes. I don't know. I don't mean to be putting words in Paul's mouth, but this is his, this is the final strophe, stroke, strophe, stroke of his symphony that is Philippians in a certain sense. And I think it's a really beautiful way to end. Does that make any sense? Am I just rambling? No, it does. I, like, if the second reading is always a little bit hard to like. Okay, how do you fit this in? Well, yeah, because it's mean, there. It's, it's, it's like, um, it's kind of like what I I've been having this this question in the Our Father. Um, uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, yeah. and that that in a, in a real way, Paul's trying to fight for them to be able to 
not just conceive of heaven as retirement. Yeah. And, yeah, that's good. And that's and that that that, we're, that that somehow that it's which it's is how just, I think most of us perceive heaven in a certain sense, right? Right. All right. right. Then I'm then I'm done. Then yeah. someday, right? Right. And and, and I mean, and there's a and certain, there's something appealing about that when you're tired, <laughs> when when you're working <laughs> yeah. and you cannot get you through your emails. So it's like <laughs> so yeah. Th- there, there's that reality, but then yes, but but that's a limited view. Yeah. yeah. And and that it actually yeah. doesn't take into the account of what the real feast is. And yeah. so 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 yes, it's it's bringing everything that Paul is trying to do together. Yeah. In, in but utilizing the whole the full scope of their lives. Yeah, exactly right. Which is what a good pastor does. That's what you do when you give homilies. You're bringing to bear the gospel message into the lives of the circumstances of your people. I think it's easy to to forget sometimes because Paul is so brilliant. It's easy to forget sometimes that he's not just a theologian. He's a pastor and he has the concerns of his congregation in mind, not just speaking abstract theology. I don't know. Right. I always have to remind myself of that. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I, it's funny. I felt that yesterday when we were in, in daily mass, and he was talking to the Galatians, and he's like, "I told Peter to his face; he was wrong." <laughs> and you're like, "Oh, you're, you're like, Holy oh, w- which, oh, which?" My. I'll tell you. In in certain ways, it's it's like it's so nice when you know that your bishop's got your back. Yeah. When you're when when the totally. one who's taking care of you is like, you know what? I had to face off against this, and you're like, oh goodness, the, thank you, because there's some things that are just that demand justice in the moment. Yes, and there's some things that actually take a long time. We're yes. talking t- Timothy. That's in the yeah. book of Timothy. Yeah, it's yeah. like, yeah, there's some there's yeah. actually some things that need judgment in the moment. Absolutely, and there's some stuff that's only revealed for both the good and the bad in the long run. And the mark of leadership is being able to discern the difference between the two. Yes, what's the long game? What's the short game? Where do right. I, how do I do that? That's a hard thing to do. And that's where Paul was like saying, hey. I had to do this. This I, was crucial. Yep. Because Peter, the first pope, was literally leading people astray. And because I knew he is pope and I respect his office so much, I had to call him out. Yep. And I did it. Yep. Matthew. The kingdom of heaven <laughs> Sounds like be I'm yelling at him. M- Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually a little, a little intense, actually. You might want to edit the volume on that one. Sorry. Uh, I will try. Um, the, the, just uh, context again, where we are, we're, we're following pretty close to where we were last week, I think. Um, but what we have to remember about this is that the context is Jesus has just shown up to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, about a chapter before he's entered into the temple. There's the cleansing of the, the money changers and the tables and he's flipped them over. He's really ticked a lot of people off. And now he's going head to head with challenges from the religious leaders and the Pharisees and scribes. They are trying to trick him. They're trying to trap him. And he is trying to expose their hypocrisy. This is coming smack in the middle of that narrative. So that's the, the context into which this falls, which is important, I think. But this is a long one um, as far as the parables that he – and he does it parabolically, which uh, in some ways I find frustrating. Because when, parables, when you say parabolically, you do not mean the particular no. shape of like a nose cone to a model rocket. And maybe I do. He's kind of lobbing it so there's a parabola oh. that's out of their reach slightly. Oh. There might be some depth oh. to that. Yeah, if you have a parabolic nose cone on a model rocket, you want to actually go a little tiny bit of salt to create um, turbulence. Salt. Yeah, gives it flavor. Yeah, so that it doesn't, uh, so that it, it flies more straight. But I'm not, I'm not making recommendations for that on this. Podcast. But I digress. But I digress. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So nutshell, we have a master, a king, a king rather. Sorry. So this king, this human king, yep. this king gives a feast. There's a wedding feast for his son. Uh, in the ancient near East, in the ancient world, um, 
you would actually, this fits into the schema of how this parable works, you would send invitations basically in two waves, right? right? So you would first send your servants out to give the invitation. Then you would send your servants out again to to beckon everyone to come, to come to go out and get them, right? So this is... This is consistent. So he goes out, he summons all the all the expected guests, the people that you would expect to come to a wedding feast of a king, of the son of a king rather, right? So he dispatched the servants, but they refuse to come. They're like, eh, we don't want to go. Uh, and then a second time they go out and he tells those invited, behold it, it's time, in other words, right? It's time to right. come. Uh, the calves and the fattened cattle, they're all killed. Everything is ready, so come to the feast. And what happens? Well, some ignore the invitation. They went away. Somebody goes to his farm. Other goes back to his business. Somebody goes back to work. The rest of them actually take the servants and they mistreated them. Mistreated them. I wonder what that means. And killed them. Mm. Does terrible things. And naturally, the king is enraged. So he sends his troops to destroy those murderers and burns their city. The These are... If you're again going in the world of the parable, if you're a king inviting people to the feast, the marriage feast of your son, I mean, who would a king invite to the son's wedding? You'd invite other dignitaries, you'd invite other kings, other royalty, other princes, right? So when it talks about burning their city, I mean, these are the people who were in charge of those places. These are the people who are responsible for their people. And the consequence of the rejection of the invitation is not just to them, but it's to the people that they are responsible for. Right. So all of a sudden, I'm being reminded of the oracles to the nations back in Isaiah chapter 23. And the nations whose leaders and influential people have made bad, poor, corrupt decisions we reap the consequences of people who are over us oftentimes. So this is a big deal. And then he said to his servants, all right, well, fine, it's ready. Everything's done. The food's done. But the ones who were invited, they weren't worthy to come. They were worthy at one point, but they had made themselves unworthy through their rejection and through their ignoring and everything else. So go to the main roads, invite whoever you find, right? So go into the streets, they gather the good, the bad. They filled the hall with the guests. Um, then there's one other piece that I want to get to in a second, but, but first I have... And I, I don't, it's not meant to be a rhetorical question, but okay. I'm thinking about this because I've, we've heard this parable before. Why would someone, and I think I have two reasons, why would someone not want to go to a party? If you were invited to a party, so Father Peter, if somebody invited you to a party, what are the reasons you might theoretically have for rejecting that invitation? Um, I don't like the people going. I don't like the people going or I don't like the host. I don't like the host. That that's what I thought of. Those are the things that came to my mind. You know, which I would say inconvenient timing. Maybe inconvenient timing. I mean there's the, there's some practicality. Long, long day at work. But yes, I think that's that's there. That's true. But the the ones that keep coming back to me are either I would not want to go to a party if I don't like the people hosting. I don't like the people being celebrated. Is that why you don't come over very often? Oh, anymore? come on. Why come are we on. doing this? Why are we playing this game? <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's oh my, my joke. I, no, I, I, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> and I just, I, I'm not, there's nothing hugely profound, but it does add a piece. I mean, what's God saying? They don't like me. God, the God of the universe is displaying the fact that the people who I have created, my beloveds, my creation, don't like me and don't want to be around me, mm. which feels like a. I don't know what I'm trying to say here. This profound, but it feels like a different level of like, oh, they have sinned. There is abstract sin. They have done these things. There's a deeper sense of a God who loves his people and a people who will not love their God back. Mm. They don't like me. 
They don't, and, and it's not even a matter of love. They don't like me. They don't want to come to my party. I'm having a party. They don't want to come to it. The other nations, there's lots of reasons for that. But I, the, I, I heard the, the pathos of this story in a new way. Right. It's like as a parent, you know, who pours themselves out into their children and loves them and gives them everything. And for a child to be like, actually, mom, dad, I don't like you. I don't want to be around you. I don't want to mm. come to dinner. I don't want to come to Christmas. I really don't like you. And for the hurt um, that that actually allows, it just, it, it struck, the story struck me in a different tone. Not like, here's the sin, here's the consequence, here's mad, angry God. The sense of a father whose children don't want to be with him, don't want to come to dinner with him. There's, I, I don't know, that was, um, I have nothing else really to say about it, but it just, it hit my, me emotionally this morning, you know? Mm. Because that's why you don't come to a party. Because you don't want to be with the people, right? right? In large part, um, or you feel like you're too busy, perhaps. But mainly, it's because you don't want to see them. You know, it's like I, I actually think on uh, that on an ecclesial level. Mm. I mean, like there's a lot of people who struggle with the leadership in the church in this in this in this time. This, and, that's the right reflection on this. And, the, and then, like, and 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 it's not necessarily about Christ, but then it, what's weird is it gets translated to that. Because Christ identifies with his church, and this is what's super hard. Well, that's where there's two things. There's either the host you don't like, or there's the people who are there you don't like. Mm. There's there's multiple reasons for not coming. Right. Which is the church. People right. might be like, well, Jesus, I, I, Jesus seems cool, but man, I can't stand those bishops. I can't stand those priests. I don't like that pope. You know what I mean? It's the, the other people at the celebration, I don't want to be with them. I kind of like the host. I'm open to the host. But those other people he invited, mm-mm, I don't like them. Mm. So you're right. I mean, there's right. and there, there, you can't separate Christ from His church, which is the beauty of the church, and also the the hard part of the church is that Christ cannot be separated from His church, which is why Peter has to call, why Paul has to call out Peter, and not just dismiss Peter and say, "Well, forget you." He says, "No, I have to deal with you," which is there's a beauty to that, but a hardness to that. And then we get to the second part then where it's, this like, dude. it's like, you know what, we're, you know what, if they're not going to come, I'm, a ha- I'm having a party. Oh, that part. I, the, yes. Then there's a third part. Well, yeah. Sorry, I, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm jumping a, ahead. I'm having a party, which is like, you know what, I have enough for everybody. And you know what, I'm going to be a generous host and, yeah. and I have no idea who, who's going to come to this party. <laughs> Literally, he's, he's like, you know what, I, I just want you to get anybody. Yeah. Get anyone. Yeah. And like- Sometimes yeah. the the church actually feels a little bit like that, which which like the, this is the story. Yeah, the, you're just you're just like hanging out, and you're like, wow, this is a collection of of, of people, man. Like well, I just think about me being a priest in the in the Holy Roman Catholic Church, and I'm like, I'm like, we'll let him in. Yeah, like no, I'm just kidding. Is, that's what I think. No, sometimes. I'm just kidding. See, you don't even want to come to my party. You don't even like okay, me anymore. Here we go. <laughs> you, oh. you started playing the game. I baited you. I've been baiting <sighs> you, you this bait whole time. You did bait me this whole time. No, but 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 I look at that. But then we end up with this. Really, it feels like the whole parable. You you start off and you say, okay, the, those who were supposed to come didn't come. We gathered everybody in, and which is really a, a risk on behalf of the of the uh, the king, the king, absolutely. And then then we we and it we, says there's good and bad alike. It, it doesn't leave it up to the imagination of like, oh, I wonder who came. It says good people came, bad people came. Yeah, like like he opens th- it up. This was th- this was a cray cray party. <laughs> that was like cray cray. It was it was like yeah. a, it was like the party that my sister threw in high school, man. It was like 1980s, dude. It was like your parents might be listening. <laughs> they they already they caught her. Oh shoot! So, but yeah, I, I think about that, and then we get to this guy. Then we get to part three, 
There's there's three movements of this story. Yeah. Right? There's the party invited invited guests to rejection, the opening it up to the good, the bad, and the ugly. And then there's movement three, which is this dude. And so somebody shows up, it says, dressed without a wedding garment. What's weird about this is that we have, there's no evidence in any ancient Near Eastern texts or writings that I'm aware of that has a prescribed garment or prescribed outfit that an invited guest is supposed to wear to a wedding. The bride and the groom, like they're supposed to wear certain things, The you know, there's certain people, but I don't know of anything that actually prescribes a certain kind of garment for a wedding guest, which tells me, so it says you didn't come with a wedding garment. That tells me we're not talking about like a particular kind of tux or a sports jacket or something. It's saying whatever state this person has showed up in is unacceptable, covered in dirt, dirty, filthy, unwashed. And I mean, maybe there's no prescribed garment in the ancient Near Eastern world, but you should probably bathe, right? You should, you should clean yourself up. You should, you're still going to a party. So it's not about like you don't have the right kind of clothes. It's that you've presented yourself in a state that's totally unacceptable. And when I'm, when I'm, where my mind go, I, I was reading even patristic commentaries on this. And, you know, there's all this stuff about, you know, different sins that we carry with us and all this stuff. But where my mind goes, and I'm sure somebody said this, but I never, I didn't see it anywhere. When I think of a, a garment showing up to a wedding celebration with a garment, my mind sacramentally goes to baptism because that's when we sort of receive so to speak, the garments of glory. And we we're literally given the garment, yeah, the garment to show up. So this guy in a certain if you if you're now we're getting convoluted between the the parable and the spiritual realities it's speaking about, but somebody shows up unfit to enter the celebration. Unbaptized, sin on their heart, what whatever it is exactly. And the beauty of this so you could read this and be like, oh, how dare this person show up to mass, to the church, to the celebration, unworthy of being received. But that's not the most important part of the story to me. The most important part of the story is when the king says, how did this happen? How did you show up in the improper state? He asks him a question that presupposes an answer. What's going on? What's up, man? Which you could, you could read it in the tone of like, how dare you? Or you could read it in a different tone of what's going on, man? Yeah, like, how can like- I help? I'm the king. I can do anything. Do you need something? Do you need a garment? Do you need access? But he is silent. He says nothing. And that's when he is cast out and there's consequences. And I know I'm probably reading too much into the story, but what we know about God, what we know about the reality of the way that God is presented, both in the parables and in reality, when people are presented with opportunities to confess, God takes them. And this guy could have mm. said, I'm sorry, I don't have what I need. Can you give it to me? That's the beauty of being invited to a king's house is that the king probably has some garments. The king probably has access. The king can give. This also tells me that even the people who rejected and killed the servants could have come back and said, will you receive us? We're sorry. We don't have what we need. Can we be made worthy? It's a story about those who are unworthy to enter the feast getting access to be made worthy to enter into the feast. Mm-hmm. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm listening to you and, and I'm realizing like that I, that I have had opportunities on a very rare occasion to have to ask somebody to leave a place. Right, right. And, and you go up and you get somebody to come with you and yep. you say, hey, what's happening here? Yeah. Like, what's going on? Is there like, 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 it's a very natural thing. And, and silence has a whole tone to it. Yeah. 
So yeah. silence is somebody shamefaced with their head hung. You can say, hey, you know what? Let me get you a sandwich. Let right. me get you right. some, you know, how how can I? Can let, I call let, somebody? Can I? Yeah, yeah, like versus somebody staring you down, looking you in your face, going like, you're trying to front up on me, right. old man. Right. You think, right. Mr. Priest, you think that you think you can do this? It's Father Priest to you. It's Father Priest. <laughs> so, so no, like, like there, yeah. there's a lot that can be, that can take place in that. Yeah. And, and, and I'm, and I'm just thinking about how, like, how radically bold the the invitation yeah really of of this of this king really is and which also tells me he's going around and he's greeting people he's being a great host right. but he's also right. not playing around right. he's like you don't right. mess with my servants you know right. what i'll burn your city bro like don't like i'm sorry but like like i yeah. i am radically generous yeah I am good in a way that is totally unabashed, yeah. but you also don't play with me. Right. You're not, right. we're not playing a game. Right. We're like, I'm very serious about what I'm doing and, and right. that there, there are actually some real relational things that are happening here. Yeah. And yet I'm totally, I'm, I'm chill. I right. can be chill, but, you, but, but don't play this game with me. And I, and it's, it's a really interesting perspective into the heart of God for me. Yeah. That yeah. that like yeah. the the Lord is like no I'm so I'm good and all you need to do is ask and we are just so... ask ask and you shall receive I mean he says that literally right. I am of the of the perhaps scandalous opinion that even in the Garden of Eden when God comes looking for Adam and Eve after they had committed their sin and he said what have you done I wonder what would have happened to the story of human history if they'd have said wow we really blew it God we did exactly what you asked us not to do we're sorry. How would human history have changed? I don't know the answer to that. But I don't believe that what Jesus shows us is that the sins we commit bring an inevitability and a permanence to them. They bring an Adam and Eve's sin. And what does Adam and Eve's sin spark? It sparks God going and looking for them. Right. What is God looking for? Reconciliation. Restoration. What is punishment for? For a building back of the relationship. And when God reaches out and asks for this relationship to be built back up, what did you guys do? What happened? They say, well, it wasn't our fault. It was your fault. It was her fault. It was your fault. It was the sermon's fault. It's 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 what we always do when we're caught right? in the bad place of we've done something. We got to get it off of me. I got to point it someplace else, which is the opposite of the humble, I blew it. Right. God is their mercy. Totally. Because if there's a request for mercy, there will be mercy given. That's what we know, definitively. If we know nothing else, we know that, right? Right. And it all lands in a relationship that is so far beyond our imagining, which is a wedding feast. Yeah. That the relationship is at the core. The core image in our Christian faith is that the God wants to marry us. Yeah. He wants to make us family. Yeah, because it doesn't mention in the story who the bride is. No. It just says the groom, which tells you something about the uh, gathered guests, right? That they're bridal. Yeah, which is beautiful. So, you know, it's, it's bridal time, you it's know? It's bridal time. It is unbridled Say yes feasting. to the dress. Yeah, say yes isn't to the sh- dress. Isn't that a show? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say it's unbridled feasting. Unbridled feasting. But, but I okay, I have to go say mass. You sure do. But I, I have to say one, <laughs> you one, gotta last, get to the feast. one last word is that I think that part of the reason why in the age that we live in, uh, marriage um, and family is so under attack is because at the core of the... Christian life is the image of God wanting to marry humanity. Absolutely. And, and so, so that if we can twist and distort that, um, if Satan can twist and distort that, then 
um, what happens is that, that this feast is obscured for us. Yes. And, yes. And, and what we're actually being called to and to join him in um, gets, uh, gets terribly uh, distorted and, and destroyed. 100%. Absolutely right. That's a good word to close us on. Boo, 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 boo. I love you guys. I got to go say mass in four minutes. All right. Bye. The Word on the Hill podcast is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org slash AICT. And you can find the Lanky Guys podcast at lankyguys.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next time.